Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Maybe you're looking for a distraction. Might be a TV show. One that can transport you somewhere else. Maybe to a world where iguanas can be mail carriers and lawn hedges are trimmed with shaving cream and hand razors. Three Busy Debras is one such show. It takes you from our current uncertain, scary world and sets you down in the fictional town of Lemon Curd, Connecticut, a pristine, filthy rich suburb where pretty much everyone drives giant SUVs and owns a huge, perfect house. It follows the day-to-day lives of three housewives, all named Deborah. Each is a bit deranged. They brunch a lot, they kind of hate each other, they hang out all the time too, and sometimes they commit murder. It's a show full of strange, surreal, offbeat, hilarious, and absolutely unique moments. The show stars Sandy Honig as Deborah and Mitra Johari as Deborah and Alyssa Stonaha as Deborah. Let's hear a little bit from the very beginning of the TV show's first episode. All three Debras have sat down for brunch. They brunch a lot. The first Debra you'll hear from is played by Sandy Honig. Your hilarious story reminded me that I have a better one. It's so funny and it's so long. (laughs) So my husband went to the doctor and found out that we have a cholesterol problem. As a result, we started eating oatmeal. (laughs) Deborah, that is so funny. You have to stop. I just remembered something that happened on the way here. I forgot because I was so busy walking inside. So what happened is that... Sandy, Mitra, Alyssa, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And congratulations on launching a deeply disturbing, uh, or at least <laughs> distressing, television comedy show during the most upsetting period of time, at least in in, in my life. Thank you. We, we begged them to release it during this time. <laughs> yeah, we actually started the coronavirus as sort of like a guerrilla marketing tactic. Oh, wow. Ooh, yeah. yeah. But technically that makes us women in STEM. So it's a win for the community. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feminist slay. <laughs> How did the three of you start working together? We met doing comedy in New York in like 2015. And... Just people in the community, in the New York comedy community, were like, you would love Alyssa, you would love Mitra, you would love Sandy. So we all got together and um, just started like doing improv together is how it started. And the first night we hung out, we improvised a scene about three women all named Deborah, And then uh, that was the last idea we've ever had. (laughs) First and the last. Yeah. (laughs) And then from there, we were writing sketches and we were trying to write a play. And we just kept com- we just kept coming back to this idea of three very busy women who were all named Deborah and how much fun it was to do that. So it had several iterations as first a 10 minute play, then a 20 minute play. Then it ran as an hour long play for a few months at the Annoyance Theater in New York. And then that eventually, through a long series of steps, led to it becoming us working with Amy Poehler and her company Paper Kite and eventually it becoming an adult. Swim show. 
why do you think you were so drawn to the idea of I mean it's a it's a more specific category than busy women but busy women is uh a <laughs> as good a name as any for us to give to it for, for right now <laughs> for the sake of convenience uh-huh. <laughs> well the the first time that we were all trying to hang out it was very hard for us to get together because we all had completely different schedules and we had this running joke before we had ever hung out in person just saying like oh my god I'm so busy sorry I can't make it oh so busy and making up excuses as to why we were so busy and I think that was why when we first started performing together we ended up just doing the bit that we had already started and it's like a, I think it's a you know it's a silly way to access the very real thing which is that Every, like people want to seem like they have a lot going on, that they're very busy, that they have these rich, fulfilling lives. And I, I think, you know, it's it's obviously we're, we're reaching that in a very silly way, but it's kind of rooted in a, a, a real thing. Ultimately, the Debras are only busy doing things that they've invented and created. <laughs> <laughs> How old were the three of you when you started improvising this idea of uh, uh, busy, busy Debras? Um, I was 23, I believe. And then I was 22. And I think I was 19. Yeah. Uh, to me, one of the most remarkable things about the story of the three of you getting together to create these characters is that they live in such a profoundly like young middle-aged world. You know, like I'm, I'm in my, I'm in my late thirties now and, uh, happy birthday to me. Uh, <laughs> Is it really your birthday? It was my birthday a couple days ago. Yeah. Happy and, birthday. Wow. wow bury, bury the, the lead. lead. Oh. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and we brought you here today to give you a surprise party. Holy what if cow. we burst in through the door of yeah, your physical space? The door. <laughs> Violating your quarantine uh, to wish you happy birthday. Um, but like I, I'm in a world of people and especially parents who live these lives of desperate busyness. You know, coming at it from from various perspectives, you know, not everybody puts the shine on it that Debra's that the Debras do. Um but like that is that is my world. That is not the world of like a junior in college. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think it is. I mean, I I think from you know for, at least for me, I was someone who really wanted to go to like an Ivy League school or something, and I was doing a million clubs in high school or whatever. And it it was this sort of beleaguered sense of how busy and exhausted I always was, and. It's a choice. I, I like it. I think the activities change, but that sense of like, oh God, sorry, I'm just so wiped. Uh, at least for me, I feel like has always kind of been there. And I think what felt like, like the bigger picture of the Deborah's world, um, I think was such a reaction for us. A leaving, like leaving our hometowns and moving to New York. It was such a reaction to the people we grew up around and be like a lot of people from my hometown going on to just like be not just, but going on to be husbands and wives and, and 
you know, preparing to like own a house. I grew up around like a lot of really rich people and they are on track to being home on homeowners in their mid to late twenties. And it was such a reaction to like the people I grew up with and, and what their lives were becoming and the, their parents and what their lives were that I, that I left to go to New York. Did you feel pressure to be that kind of person yourself or did you pressure yourself to be that kind of person? I'm from an area outside of Cincinnati and everyone's kind of married straight out of college. And I just sort of assumed that would be my life as well. And really, really had no problem with that and was ready to do that. And then just started doing comedy and it sort of changed everything very quickly. But I I think, you know, had I not started doing college improv, I would certainly be a married doctor by now. <laughs> I feel like I kind of had an opposite experience because I I have two parents that uh, kind of got forced into a career that I don't, I mean, not forced, but I, I asked my dad, you know, my dad's a doctor and I, his mom always really wanted him to be a doctor. Um, and I was like, you know, is that, what would you have been if you weren't a doctor? And he was like, I don't know. And I, I feel like my my mom always felt kind of the same and they encouraged me and my brother to, you know, follow more, you know, whatever made us happy and more creative passions. Yeah, and I felt I felt similarly that I got really into comedy like in like middle school and high school and I, I didn't you know, I, I thought I would maybe do other things, but I desperately knew that I that that's what I wanted to pursue because I just loved comedy so much. I didn't know if it was possible or, you know, whatever, but I, I just knew, like, I f- feel strongly about this and I I hope beyond hope that I can pursue it. Wait, yeah, actually, I knew from a young age, too, that I loved comedy. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the moment I came out of the womb, um, I said, somebody stop me. And uh, just sort of everything fell into place after that. Um, but, I, but I don't know. I, I do definitely feel I don't know if this is something that like our parents generation felt, but I definitely feel like there's a pressure of us when we were in middle school, of you know, oh, when you get to high school, you have to figure out, you have to have a perfect GPA and you have to take AP classes so that when you go to college, you can have, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, you can yeah. have your college courses done. And then when you're done with college, it's, it's like a very, you know, life is a long list of tasks. Right. And then you die. <laughs> it's beautiful. Get a ta- I hope somebody gets a tattoo of that. There, there's another kind of pressure, which is the pressure to, like live your passion. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Did, did any? Did any? Then that can kind of that is obviously often in direct conflict with the pressure to uh, achieve or get into the right college or whatever. Uh, did any of you feel that at, at your back? Um, I remember when I was applying to colleges. I uh, went to school for photography, and I worked as a photographer. And I, a friend of mine was asking me, like, what do you want to major in in college? And I was like, well, I was was thinking photography. And he was like, why would you waste your brain on that? I'll never forget that. Because he was like, you're you're smart. You shouldn't do art. Like, why would you... (laughs) Arts for dummies. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Anyone can do art. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's why nose tackles make the best artists. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I don't know. I also had a situation in college where this is not really the same thing, but more just like the the pressure of 
when I was like a junior in college, uh, I was studying photography and I had a friend of mine. I was like, you know, I'm thinking I kind of want to do comedy. And he said, it's too late. You're three years into a photography degree. You're a photographer. It's too late for you to do comedy. (laughs) And I like freaked out because I was like, oh, like I should have started earlier now. Like, you know, everyone that I knew in college was already like, oh, doing improv and on sketch teams. And I wasn't doing any of that. And it like completely got in my head. I was 20. No, maybe 19. I don't know. It was insane. Holy moly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't really think that you could live your passion. So it's sort of the opposite of like, I don't know, I, I would watch shows that filmed like shows like The Daily Show that filmed in New York and be like, wow, I wonder like who who works on those shows? It feels so impossible and inaccessible to me. And there was sort of never any sense of like that could be you one day or you could you could you could one day work in, in television. It just felt like like all those people must have known a million people in New York or grew up in New York. And like it just that it was this sort of uh, like inaccessible club that people like me being like, you know, someone from Ohio or whatever, like could not access. Um, So it just wasn't even uh, there. There was never any sense of you're going to do this one day. Whereas I am an East Coast elite and um, (laughs) was told from a young age, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) JK, JK, JK. But <laughs> there's something really um, remarkable about the show, which is that these characters are each in their own way horrible monsters. <laughs> I mean, the show really opens with the show opens with them sort of uh, smiling and waving their way through manslaughter at best. <laughs> But there is a certain sympathy for these characters as well. Like, it seems like you are having a contest to see what is the most horrible thing that they can do <laughs> that you can give a little bit of reason for why they would do something like that, that that actually kind of feels like it makes sense. Well, it's sort of this idea of like, they're the the protagonist of the show are villains to the world but they're villains because they're like a product of the place and time and structure that they've been raised in and it's so it's sort of like sympathizing with these horrible women but also getting to like laugh at them and laugh with them i i think is the the desire yeah i think you know a lot of our process of writing the show is starting with some sort of real emotional thing that is relatable so you know two De- two debbers get into a club and the other one doesn't get in so she feels left out like feeling excluded feels very real so then we can do really heightened silly stuff but but i think ultimately coming from the place of like three women being very very unfulfilled so you can kind of relate to that or at least understand that what are the key elements of the sort of semi-anonymous world in which the Debras live? Like, what are the things like them driving uh, white Cadillac Escalades <laughs> that feel like the specifics that that make it familiar? I would say wasteful for sure. Like, you know, driving these huge gas guzzlers alone in their car. Um, to go next door. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like a Americana suburbia, but trying to you know 
literally trying to divorce it from existing in a time or place that we know by not by not really uh, naming it something that exists or referencing things, but but trying to make it feel like the it's a unique suburbia is a uniquely um, like this kind of suburbia is a uniquely like American, I think, wastefulness. And we wanted it to feel like, you know, you could watch this show and it's whatever the the richest neighborhood in your hometown is or something like that. Like it's not tied to a specific state or city or anything like that. These are just really extravagant, manicured, pristine. Like it's all about projection and the show. Even if things are really horrible inside the house, the house will always look beautiful. And the same with the Debras. You know, it's horrible inside the Debras, but on the outside, they're very clean at least. (laughs) What are some moments in the show that grew out of uh, or were exaggerated from uh, things that you saw people do in your own lives? Oh, if I say it, I'll get in trouble. I know. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to use names. And this is public radio, so there's not that many people listening. (laughs) Um. I mean, I would say definitely some stuff from that sleepover episode both comes from me as a person, but also people in my life, just like the the desperately wanting, like trying to force warmth and intimacy onto other people. And the like the obviously the the tactics are very heightened, but I think those are very relatable to me as a person as well to people in my own life where like in, in my real life, I'm constantly before quarantine was like constantly you know, come over, I'll make you dinner. Like this sense of like, if I curate such a perfect environment, then you're going to like me back. So that that is something that comes from a very real place within me. And I think hopefully like kind of is a relatable thing. Um, but, but I think that's something that it, I've seen and felt in my own life. I feel like um, in the, the Cartwheel Club episode where, where Mitra and Sandy's Debra's get into the club and I don't and I'm left out feels a very, and, and also the specific detail that like I can't do a cartwheel and I did it. <laughs> oh like, yeah. It, well, I mean I can't do a cartwheel, but also it's this sense of like I can't do the thing that it's required of me, and I didn't try to learn, and now I feel left out is like a very bad cycle that I feel I can I've gotten in like since I was a child where I like I don't do the thing, don't try to do the thing, but then when I see everyone else do it, I'm really jealous and have horrific desires to ruin it for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) In a moment, we'll wrap up my interview with the cast of Three Busy Debras. After a quick break, was there ever an idea they pitched for the show that was too bizarre to make the cut? And in the world of Three Busy Debras, what could that even be? Well, we're about to find out. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The world is complicated. But knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now. Strange planets, curious technology, and a fantastic vision of the distant future 
featuring Martin Starr. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Aparna Nancherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. I'm staying. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGivern. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? It's The Outer Reach. Stories from Beyond. Now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Sandy Honig, Mitra Johari, and Alyssa Stonaha. They're the creators and stars of the new show, Three Busy Debras. It's a truly bizarre, hilarious program that just wrapped its first season on Adult Swim. It's hard to tell you what the premise is. It revolves around three women who all live in an idyllic suburb. All of them are sociopathic and busy, and they're all named Deborah. Let's get back into our conversation. You got the attention of Amy Poehler, one of the founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade, uh, who is also a, a producer on the show. Uh, when you did a version of the of the Three Deborahs play at a theater at Carnegie Hall, you ever heard of it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How how did you get to Carnegie Hall? Money, money, money. <laughs> um, we found out that you can just rent it, and that's how a lot of people end up performing. There is, like any good old institution, capitalism. So we uh, started a Kickstarter to raise the money to rent it for a night to perform the show one night only um for free like the trade-off was the tickets would be free uh if you if you gave to the kickstarter so we did a one night only show and it was all new which was super fun and also the most stressful experience of our lives (laughs) (laughs) it was also you know it's it's a lot of money to rent it out but even more money if you want to actually have lights change or the light or you know sound or so the reason that we ended up writing this new show is because our original play had so many sound cues and video cues that we were we realized we just had to write something specifically built for a stage where you couldn't have anything change except dialogue and someone playing a piano yeah we did Um, the bare bones package which is they turned the lights on and then they turned the lights off yeah it was the house lights (laughs) so we could see everyone's face for the entire show (laughs) the lighting was horrible the lighting was horrible and we worked unnecessarily and tirelessly on the uh seating chart so we also had audience plants we had audience plants so we assigned every single person (laughs) who got a ticket uh their seat and then during the intermission, when the house lights came up again, when we were back on stage, we realized that people were in different seats than we had assigned them. And uh, we still remember that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the more you talk about this event, the more it's starting to sound like you were trying to plan the perfect wedding. It really felt like a wedding. I mean, there was a day when we were all at my house and we were putting together the seating chart. And it really was like, wow, this, I mean, this could be our wedding. Like, this, this might be it. I, like, all of our families were there our best friends were there um we made them all dress up (laughs) we made them all we made them all dress up and we sat all of our parents together so it very much was our wedding (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it is ironic that that the uh, that all three of you chose the path of not getting married right out of college uh, and trying to become a pharmacist or whatever, and instead dedicated your lives to comedy and had to have this weird symbolic wedding instead. And actually, <laughs> well, right now. The- Oh, oh, go ahead, Alyssa. No, it was a joke. So it's it's the time has passed. <laughs> I want to hear the joke. I was saying, and actually, now we need comedy, not pharmacists, more than ever. No, <laughs> no, no. But, that's, but I was saying it ironically. And if anybody comes for me, I'll kill them. <laughs> um, I, I one of, when we did the Kickstarter, we had a bunch of Kickstarter prizes, which most of them were kind of like slaps in the face, um, kind of doing a joke on kickstarters where it was like if you donate a hundred dollars we will send you a zip file of papers that we wrote in college or if you don't <laughs> donate fifty dollars we will mail you a box of stuff that we don't want from our apartments and you know it was it was someone like, got pistachio shells <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> someone got a but, box full of discarded pistachio shells but one of the things that you could do is if you paid uh, the full amount that we were asking for, which was, I believe, $7,500, you could marry Alyssa at Carnegie Hall. Um, <laughs> and we, we, no one did it. No one took the bait. <laughs> oh, and if you, donate, if you donated $5,000, you would get a digital shout out. That was <laughs> something. Um, the show is on Adult Swim, which has been... Uh, supported so many brilliant and amazing, bizarre and disturbing comedy projects over the last few decades. It also was the subject maybe six months ago of a a BuzzFeed article that, that revealed that of the top line creator level talent and its shows that it had on the air and in production, one in 34 was a woman. Did you know about that reputation before you went in to pitch and was it a worry? I mean, I think what we wanted was a place where we could make exactly the show we wanted to make in our own voices and the place that felt to us like the the place where we had the likeliest chance of getting to make our show was Adult Swim. So that was the place where we always wanted to make it. So we went into that pitch just hoping that we would get to do that. So it it was very exciting to us to to get that yes because we we just wanted to be able to make our thing and when we were doing our play and we were like you know just sort of talking and and dreaming to one another about (laughs) like like what if we get to make this like a big thing like for tv or you know whatever it was always like adult swim feels like the right the only right place really it's like the only place that really embraces like that you know, weird, surreal, absurdist, like (laughs) comedy, like type of comedy. Like there's, I I don't know. It just, it was always like a dream sort of place because the coolest stuff had come out of there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we, we did know going into the pitch, you know, about that, but after, you know, that stuff came out, a ton of people that work with Adult Swim, people like Brett Gelman, and they, they came out and sort of defended women and were saying, you know, this is something that we should change. So it felt like there was a very positive atmosphere towards looking to remedy that, which was exciting. All three of your characters are named Deborah, And as far as we can tell, that is their only name. <laughs> uh, what do you actually like write into the script? 
we write uh, Mitra, Sandy, and Alyssa in the script, and sometimes when we're writing in the dialogue, we will accidentally write one of them referring to uh, Mitra, Sandy, or Alyssa instead of Deborah. And the joke we always make is, who's Mitra? Who's Sandy? Who's Alyssa? And it's really awesome. We all laugh a lot the whole time. <laughs> it's funny every time. <laughs> Gets me every time. It does, actually. <laughs> what is one of the most bizarre plot pitches that made it into this season of Three Busy Debras? And what is one <laughs> that... Uh, was simply too bizarre for television. I'm going to go out on a limb and say uh, the ATM that grows out of the ground, <laughs> it, the naturally occurring ATM that grows out of the ground, which was originally a joke beat in an episode that didn't end up getting made or like didn't end up getting written. Uh, it was a joke beat that we were told to cut that we then said, well, and we were told to cut it because it was too weird also. <laughs> and then we were like, but what if we made that the whole episode? I feel like it could make sense. <laughs> I think that was maybe the weirdest uh, or like the, yeah, the most, the, the the most like strange world building thing we had to explain. <laughs> D- definitely like the one where you really have to ask the audience to suspend their, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> disbelief and really go just mean? go with the fact that we're saying okay. Listen, in the first ten seconds of this episode, you just have to understand that the ATM goes out of the ground. And now it's erupting. Okay, continue with the story. (laughs) Don't ask questions yet, because I feel like there will be a lot more questions you will be asking later. (laughs) I like the idea of someone saying, sorry, sorry, gang, this one strains credulity. Let's let's stick with grounded material like an iguana delivering the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we understand the mail, we understand the concept of the mailman. We certainly understand the concept of an iguana. Yeah, so we just combine, so, combine the two. Where's the problem here? <laughs> it's grounded. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something that got cu- that we didn't end up doing because it didn't make any sense. <laughs> but I kind of feel like we were able to get away with everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think like like gags got cut, but for the most part you know, for better or for worse, we're kind of allowed to do the stuff that we like. So, um, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if like anything we really, really loved got cut. I don't think, I mean, I think there, there was one thing where at the end of the episode, the fourth episode, Barbara, we were writing that end of that episode, which I think is the most chaotic 30 seconds of any episode that we've done and the whole time we were writing it we were like all right obviously we're going to be told we have to change this and then we didn't get told and we're going into production and we're like well obviously at some point someone is going to stop us and someone is going to tell us we can't do this and then it just got to the day we were shooting it it was like okay I guess everyone's letting us (laughs) do this and that's a nice sort of like succinct way to describe the whole experience of doing this show is like surely someone will interfere no okay wow yay (laughs) is that also scary well it it, it is I (laughs) well episode that episode um aired not this past I don't know when this is coming out but at the time of this recording, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before, and I was prepared. I was worried that that episode 
would the ending of that episode would be like would make people watching it um, mad at how stupid it was, <laughs> and um, people the, the, <laughs> and the feedback I've seen has been that it's like some of people's favorite jokes and stuff, and that that is rewarding. Where it's like, oh, this was really silly. To this was the silliest moment of writing that season was was writing that scene, and we were like doing it through tears laughing because we were like this is so stupid and funny to us and and for people to um, feel similarly is shocking and scary going into it yeah I mean it's very vulnerable to have worked on something for five years and like constantly consistently throughout those five years and at the end of that the show just comes out and it's like uh, here's here's that thing I've been talking about since 2015 oh, God, I hope you like it. And then the nice thing is that people have been so kind and it, you know, it has been well received. And that that is, I mean, it, it is very scary to just earnestly put something out into the world, no matter what. So it's exciting that people like it. I think I would be most afraid of not having limits and thus being entirely responsible for my work like the the fact that no one was checking me you know i mean we're super lucky that we have like great producers and our like the the folks at adult swim are are really everybody's really involved in the making of this show so i mean if we're ever going out too far on a limb someone will be like hey like maybe rein this thing in but this thing is really working so i think we definitely have checks we we've are getting we are i think do a good job of sort of checking ourselves but we also work with really wonderful people who ask the right questions and keep us from going too you know it's it's so hard to tell with this show like what's too far or something but (laughs) keep us keep us true to whatever story we say that we're trying to tell kind of i mean i think we've established that as far as you're concerned too far has yet to occur (laughs) Well, we just want to make sure we keep it subtle, nuanced, grounded, bumblecore kind of vibes. Exactly. For- <laughs> and the thing that's been really amazing is, you know, it's like we get to, we just do such subtle performances that... Um, yeah, we trained really, really long in, in Juilliard's acting school. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're all hams. Um. <laughs> well, Sandy, Mitra, Alyssa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on Bullseye. It was... Uh, Really great to talk to you, and the, and the show is really hilarious. Congratulations. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. much. Sandy Honig, Mitra Johari, and Alyssa Stonaha. Three Busy Debras is, well, it's something else. Give it a watch on adultswim.com or the Adult Swim app. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around Los Angeles, California. This week, Jesus, my colleague, shaved half his beard off, then kept it that way for a day before shaving the rest of it off. We're all going a little nuts in our homes and apartments. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our half-bearded associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Jordan Cowling at Maximum Fun. Our interstitial music is by the great DJW, Dan Wally. 
Our theme song is by the wonderful The Go Team. Thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. Just heard they're working on a new record, so look forward to that. We've been making this show for a very, very long time with hundreds of episodes in our archives at MaximumFun.org. If you like Adult Swim, we did a great interview with Jenna Friedman, who created the insane documentary series Soft Focus for that network. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 